Friends and fellow citizens, welcome to the podcast. Today I had the pleasure of sitting down with a man seeking to become the Democratic nominee for president, Governor John Hickenlooper. Hickenlooper is best known on the national stage for being the first governor to sign a bill legalizing the recreational use of marijuana. Even though he was not pro-legalization at the time, he says that he respected the will of the people of Colorado, and when they voted legalization into law, he signed it. His two terms as governor were not easy. Overseeing the creation of a process to regulate and tax marijuana was daunting, and not every decision was a popular one. As governor, Hickenlooper had to try and balance the boom of fracking with his knowledge that climate change is driven by fossil fuels. He dealt with the tragedy of the Aurora shooting and its aftermath, and he worked to enact reasonable gun safety laws that most people, regardless of party, could support. John Hickenlooper hasn't always been in politics. His lengthy college career culminated with a bachelor's in English and a master's in geology, which led him to work for an oil company in Colorado. When the oil company was bought out, John and most of the staff were laid off, which was a profound experience. Hickenlooper has said not only did he lose his job, but he lost his career. After about two years of unemployment, Hickenlooper and a few partners invested in a new concept which proved to be a winner. They built a brew pub in the heart of then economically depressed lower downtown Denver. The project worked and the area grew. The team went on to build additional brew pubs in other Midwestern cities and experienced solid success along with the satisfaction of knowing that they were improving the economies of urban areas that needed it the most. Hickenlooper's new experience with municipal governments and the relationships he built inspired a run for mayor of Denver in 2003 a position which he was re-elected for four years later with 88% of the vote. While serving as mayor, he ran for governor of Colorado, which he won in a landslide vote as a pro-business Democrat in a purple state. Four years later, he won re-election on a record of job creation, Medicare expansion, regulation reduction, and a balanced budget. If you take the time to research his policies and achievement in executive office, as mayor of Denver and as of governor of Colorado, you will probably find a few things you might disagree with and many things you would embrace. While every candidate for president talks in the theoretical about what they would achieve, John Hickenlooper has a track record of decisive actions that allow you to see exactly where he has stood on all major issues, from climate change to gun safety, health care to energy, death penalty to community investment, and small government, and of course, cannabis legalization and states' rights. And now, without further introduction, I give you Governor John Hickenlooper. Perfect. All right. Well, Governor Hickenlooper, thank you very much for joining us today. Hey, I'm so excited to be here after hearing about it now. It's here in the flesh or in the wood or in the electronics. That's right. You're originally going to be our inaugural podcast, but uh, things didn't work out because of timing, but we got you here. Well, it is delighted. It is a delight to be back and to, to get to do what, what we talked about what, a month ago. That's right. Yep. And so it was uh, about a month ago. So it's been two months to the day since you announced, I believe. How, it is the, our anniversary. That's right. How's the campaign been going? You know, I don't know what it says about me as a human, as a person, but I love it. I mean, I, I love, I, f- I think it's a blessing to be able to go into 
a stranger's living room and have a half dozen people you've never met before who, in the course of 15 or 20 minutes, begin telling you, you know, they're, 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 the, the, the most difficult challenges they've had in their life, their greatest dreams and aspirations, they share this with you at the same level of privacy and intimacy as if you were, a, you know, a family member. And it is so revelatory, you know, that, in other words, you, I learned so much about people and what they care about. I, I feel like I learned a lot about myself. And it's a blessing. I think that, that just the opportunity to, to partake in this aspect of American democracy is a tremendous gift. So have you always been somebody that people opened up to, or has that been something that you've learned uh, how to facilitate over the years? Or, Well, it's funny. I have always been someone, you know, I was youngest of four kids, uh, and my mother had been widowed twice before she was 40, so I was only eight when my dad died. And it was a pretty sad household. Again, my mom never felt sorry for herself. I'd never heard her complain, ever, once, uh, except maybe about me, <laughs> my behavior. But... It, you did. I, I would fight to try and get a word in edgewise. And I got better and better at paying attention and studying how my older brother and my two sisters, how they navigated conversation and how they, you know, got into really good conversations, especially with adults. Uh, so I kind of learned how to draw people out talking to like my aunts and uncles. And especially I had a, a great aunt uh, and a couple great uncles, one great, great uncle. Uh, and, you know, that experience of really kind of l paying attention to what people wanted to talk about and, and bring the conversation back to things that they cared about, uh, was, you know, that was part of my, my childhood, uh, you know, it was my out-of-school curriculum. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And you've had a lot of that uh, in life, it seems. I, I did read your book. As, oh, you poor soul. You, yeah. <laughs> they tell me it's really good if you're having trouble getting to sleep. <laughs> well, I have to say, it's, it's nice to see that uh, we have potentially a future president who not only can read, but also can write. So, <laughs> um, so what was that experience? Like? What drove you to write your book? Well, it's funny. My father was a great storyteller and raconteur. He'd, I mean, he's very funny. I mean, again, he got sick. Uh, and back then, they didn't really know how to deal with intestinal cancer. So uh, he was sick for all, more than three years and multiple operations. Uh, and so I remember when I was very young, I have a few glimpses of, of him telling stories, but that's certainly how he was remembered again and again. But I never got to hear any of the stories. I mean, even my own family, you know, my mom almost never talked about him just because it was, it was painful for so long. And then after about 15 or 16 years, she remarried, uh, fell in love with a guy. He actually, he's five years younger than she was, and he kind of looked like Cary Grant. Um, it was a, it's amazing you know, evolution that where she kind of came back to life uh, after this long period. But I, I learned, you know, it turned out when I was 45, I ended up through chance meeting the, the author, Kurt Vonnegut. And he turned out to have been my father's friend at Cornell University, uh, good friends at Cornell. And it's weird. He told me all these stories about my dad that I'd never heard before. And it was, it was funny. I felt like I wanted to make sure I told my stories to my son so that if something happened, if, you know, a bolt of lightning came down from the parting of clouds and, 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 and killed me, that my son would have as many of my stories as I could think of uh, and get down. So that was the original motivation. But then I also, 
I, I wanted to do something that was fresh and different. I had a writing teacher when I was in college uh, who came in. His name was Paul Horgan. Uh, and he came into class one day and he said, everything has been said, but not everything has been said superbly. And even if it had, everything must be said freshly again and again. And I wanted to do it freshly. I wanted to talk about my life in an honest way, even the stupid mistakes I made, uh, all the dumb things I did. And I also wanted to talk about public policy and what we did while I was mayor and, and the first term as governor, you know, that, that were things that, I mean, I, I was trying to take an entrepreneur's approach to public service, to, to being a mayor, to being a governor, accept some risk, but really measure whether you've got a reward that's worth the risk you're taking. And, you know, partner with foundations and nonprofits so that you're not using public money, taxpayers' money, when you're actually doing, you know, taking some risk. And that, you know, I don't think I've seen that written in that style before, uh, public-private partnerships and really demonstrating how to get stuff done. It's interesting. Um, you've had a pretty uh, varied career uh, coming into this, uh, as I recall. And, and I sat down a couple of days ago and talked with a local guy uh, who um, has, uh, he, uh, two years earlier, he had just started playing guitar and um, playing at bars and, and such. And he found that he not only liked it, but people really enjoyed his music. His name is Ben Fuller, neat guy. And um, people were telling him, man, you know, you're playing country music, you're up here in New England, you need to move to Nashville. And he was thinking, oh, I'm not going to move to Nashville. And then some, some different things happened in his life, and he woke up one morning and said, I'm going to do it. And so he, he quit his job, he sold his house, he, he was a single guy, and uh, he started a GoFundMe, and people kicked in, and he picked up, he recorded a couple songs, and moved to Nashville, and he's been playing lower Broadway. And so his lesson <laughs> was, you know, I did this at the age of 32, and I'm looking around, and there's all these younger people that are here, and they're telling me, man, you know, you waited too long, and, and, and such. And he said, no. When I look around, I see these young folks that are, uh, just barely getting started, but they're, they don't have the experience right. out there. They're partying too much. They're having too much fun. You're getting into politics. You got into politics at the age, was it 49? Yeah. Yeah. And you'd had, you'd had a career. You'd been unemployed. You'd had a second career where you were extremely successful. So how does that lead up to your current position, your, your current uh, aspirations? Well, well, first, his name is Bun Fuller. Ben. Ben, ben Fuller. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Ben Fuller. No, I wanna, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to check him out. I, there's a friend of ours, a good friend of my wife's from school uh, named Ketch Secor. And he's like, you ever hear that song, uh, Wagon Wheel? Uh, you know, rock sure, yeah. Mama yeah. like a wagon wheel. Yeah. Uh, he wrote that. Uh, for He had a band. He still has a band called Old Crow Medicine Show. Yeah. But he's very active. He knows everybody down in... Uh, in Nashville, and loves to help young musicians. So, oh. I think even 32-year-olds would be considered a young musician. Sure. Yeah, he's a great, very talented. Guy. He sounds awesome. Uh, but I'll, I'll, you know, I'll get get his email from you, and I'll I'll send it to Catch. Cool. Um, you know, I think part of the reason I'm running for president is because I do have this different set of experiences than anybody else who's running. Right. In other words, I was I was out of work for two years, and I know what that feels like. I know what government has done that doesn't work. I've experienced it firsthand. I know what that does. You know, after six or eight months unemployed, you see a different person in the mirror. And that's something a lot of elected officials have never, you know, they, they can talk about it, but they've never lived it. Uh, and that same way of starting a business from scratch. And as you know, when you open a restaurant, it seems like there'll be weeks where everything that can go wrong goes wrong. And it seems like you'll never open. Uh, and, you know, the opposite of woe is to giddy up, right? You, you just work harder, you just push, and, and, you, and you get it done, and you do what needs to be done. And 
it seems like most times God figures out a way that you can succeed or if you're willing to work hard enough, some good thing happens to you, right? Just after all the bad things, it seems like there can't be another possible bad thing that happens. One more bad thing happens and then something good happens. And I think that's that life experience of having started a business and taking it through the bad times and then build it up to something pretty respectable. Uh, we were up to, by the time uh, I, I ran for mayor, we were, I think, almost $25 million a year. It was a real, real company. And I mean, not a big company like the, you know, these fat cats, but, it, you know, to build something from scratch to get to that size is, you know, you learn, you make a lot of mistakes and, and you learn from those mistakes and you hire, you put, you're always putting a team together and the team changes, but you figure out how to motivate people and get them in the right place and hold them accountable and, uh, that's what a president does at a, at, a, at a much larger scale. So I thought that that experience prepared me to be mayor. And then having been a mayor for eight years, uh, I mean, and Denver's a strong mayor form of government. So the mayor has total control, hires all the senior staff for all the city agencies, but he also makes the budget. And city council needs nine out of 13 votes to change the budget. So the, the mayor has tremendous influence. Uh, and then I ran for governor. The governor is a much weaker form of governor, uh, of, of leader, uh, than the mayor is. But you're still, you, you hire all your cabinet. You are in charge of managing all the agencies of the state, which is almost identical to what the president does. And I look at most of the other people running for president are, have been senators or they've been in that in Washington for so long, and it's so adversarial. And, and you know, Washington, I understand why it happens. There's, there's a good reason that you attack each other, that, that people become adversarial, because it keeps you in the newspaper, keeps you on TV. If you're attacking someone else, then you're in the news. But that doesn't help, especially after the election, it doesn't help move, get people together and move, uh, create progress and, and, and move society forward. So I've always, you know, when I ran for mayor, I never said anything negative about any of the other candidates. I kept a very clear focus on presenting a positive vision of what Denver could be and, you know, no negative ads. Same thing when I ran for governor. What, what could Colorado be? And I think it's time for someone to pre present a, a, a powerful vision of what, what America could be, right? And, and how do we bring back common decency, right? And telling the truth, treating everyone with respect. You know, let's, you know whether you're talking about Aesop's fables or, or the lessons from the Bible or the lessons from the Koran, I mean... There is a long, I mean, centuries and centuries of history of how people should treat each other, how we function best as society uh, by treating each other with certain levels of respect. And we're throwing it all out the window. It's enough to, <clears throat> it's enough to make me want to scream if I wasn't in front of a microphone. Right, yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that I picked up when you were on Pod Save America, which was a recent podcast that you did, uh, you were, was it John Favreau? Yeah, John Favreau. But yeah. he, he's not as good as you, I don't think. <laughs> he's more I'm experienced, sure. but I don't think he's got the, the same freshness and innovation. You're saying it in a fresh way. Right. Well, <laughs> I appreciate that very much. But one of the things that you said, the quote, uh, never has common decency been in such short supply. And I guess, I mean, how would you face an opponent in a debate or, or on, you know, the, uh, in, in advertisement, uh, just on stage in front of the whole world? And maintain that decency, elevate the level of discourse, yet face an opponent who prefers to operate in the gutter. How do you do that? Well, you know, and again, as a, as a skinny kid with a funny last name, I was a, a magnet in elementary school for bullies. I had both in third grade and fourth grade, I had some real challenges. And then in seventh grade, I had 
a bully that, 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 you know, just made my life miserable for a couple of months. And the way to deal with a bully, I mean, almost always, and I think this is absolutely true of President Trump, they are insecure narcissists. In other words, they need to be the center of attention. They have to be the center of the attention, but they don't really think they're worth anything. And they, they don't feel they have real value, so they're always pretending to be bigger and stronger and meaner than they really are. And what I learned, the way to treat a bully is to not take it seriously, laugh at him, and, just, and, and not laugh in a, in a scornful way, but, but laugh. Take what he says and twist it just enough so that the people that, that he's trying to impress, that they can start laughing at him. And if you remember, if you go back in, on YouTube and you look at some of the footage of when President Trump addressed the General Assembly of the United Nations, you know, he, he was bragging about this and bragging about that, and a bunch of the UN delegates started laughing. And a bunch of them were laughing, and he didn't understand why they were laughing, and he wasn't sure what he'd said, and he stopped for almost 30 seconds, and he, he couldn't speak. I think that's a real reflection that he is a, a traditional bully, and that, you know, he's obsessive-compulsive. He, sp- he spends all this time thinking of what is the next nasty thing he can say, how could he really, what's the worst nickname he can say about Joe Biden or Hillary Clinton, and I'm sure it'll, hope, hopefully it'll be eventually about John Hickenlooper. But I'm not going to take the bait. I'm going to make fun of it. I'm going to, you know, I'll make my own funny nickname of him. You know, you see the De- the Washington Post now measures he has ten thousand. That's incredible. Ten thousand yeah. lies, right? Well, we should maybe we should call him the Lion King. Right? There you go, Mustafa. Hey, Lion King, you're the Lion King. Um, I-, I wanted to ask you. Uh, you know, part of Trump's appeal was that he pulled people in that either hadn't participated before. They really were left feeling that they didn't have, a, for lack of a better word, I guess, a tribe to belong to. And he pulled people in and he gave them something to, to feel some belonging um, to. Um, and, and a lot of the times, you know, you see in the past, the Republican Party, I think, has really worked to use the politics of fear versus the politics of hope. Um, the, the celebrity status that Trump had with, the, um, with his television persona and such really, I think, pulled a lot of people in. How do you compete with that? How do you give these folks that are feeling drawn to that, uh, these, these independents that are in the middle that might have voted for Trump, they might, they might not necessarily sign on 100%, but, but how do you pull them over? How do you give them a tribe to belong to, these folks that are, that are out there in the cold? Sure, and that's, that's a great question. It's uh, not immediately apparent what is the best way. There are a lot of things to try. As we were dri- actually driving over to the studio today, uh, one of my staff was talking about, you know, trying to create uh, a nickname of the people that follow what we're trying to do. So remember, Arnold Palmer had Arnie's Army. Uh, you know, you have, if, you, if there's a name for the people trying to follow you, uh, it'll, it empowers them in some way. And I think that's what we've got to do is empower people to feel like their voice against against Donald Trump is going to have a profound change, not just on our, America, on our, on our country in America, but on, on our, our world and on history. And we're, trying, we're talking about maybe what we are as doers. And, and, and the other candidates and so much of Washington politics is about debate and laws and, uh, you know, enemies and, and attacks and counterattacks. And maybe we're going to be the ones that get stuff done and that we can inspire 
people everywhere at every level of society to say, right, what am I, what's what, the little thing I'm going to get done in a day? How, how can I move democracy forward? How can I what, – what, what small effort uh, can we make to actually demonstrate that there's a better way? We can be better than what we are. And, you know, when I, when I got inaugurated after my, my re-election as governor, you know, one of my staff came up with this idea and, and created a little website – uh, and we talked about creating random acts of kindness. And our goal was by, to, by the 4th of July, by Independence Day, and I got inaugurated on, I think it was the 9th of January, we were going we to collect and inspire 10,000 random acts of, uh, of kindness. And people had their certain, you know, they had to write it up. They had to send it in, post it on the website. We had, we, we had a uh, in, couple interns uh, that would verify and kind of, you know, I mean, it was a big effort. And we did it. Uh, those kinds of things where you actually do something and you can measure it and you can talk about it, and it is, it's about doing something for other people that allows you to feel better about yourself. Uh, I think that's at the core of what's going to defeat Donald Trump. And it helps the fact that he's all the people he promised to help, he's hurt. You know, farmers and sure. ranchers are all yeah. doing worse. The trade, the tariff wars are a disaster. You know, unless you're someone who owns a lot of stock in a large company. The, the odds are you're not doing much better than you were before, and you're certainly much more at risk now than you were before Trump came, became president. But it, it will be more powerful if we can provide a, a conduit by which anybody can feel like they're, they're a doer, they're, they're doing something that matters. Yeah, so one of the things that's uh, for people that may not know is that you were not only elected the first time in Colorado, but the second time. And Colorado, as, I've, as I understand, is pretty divided. You have pretty purple. about a third Democrat, a third Republican, and a third Independent. And you've done some work to help bridge those gaps. What types of, uh, what types of, uh, what, what, what from your experience with um, bringing people together uh, that you have in Colorado could you now bring to this divided federal government? Well, part of it is you have to walk your talk. And so if, you're, if you want to find ways to bring people together, A, you, you've got to avoid attack ads and tearing your opposition down. Because you know what attack ads do, or what, when you attack another candidate, what that does, in both cases, you're not just attacking your opponent. You're, you're, you're really attacking all the people that support that person. When you do a negative ad that's not based on truth and it's really dark and it's got that sinister music, you know, you're attacking all those people that support the candidate who you're competing against, and that's wrong. Uh, attack ads, no one ever uses them in business. You know, the, I was talking, I can't remember whether it was on, on podcast, on Pod Save America, but uh, there is, you never, almost never see private businesses use attack ads. And Coke and Pepsi hate each other, but they never attack each other. If Coke attacked Pepsi, Pepsi's sales would go down. Attack ads work. Pepsi would have no choice but to attack Coke. Coke would attack Pepsi. Pepsi would attack Coke. You would depress the entire product category of soft drinks. What we're doing now is we're depressing the product category of democracy. So that's the first thing I would do is not attack anybody. Uh, second thing, once the election's over, you know, I hire talent, right? Now I'm looking for a, you know, a, a head of Parks and Rec for the city or if I'm looking for a, 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 a director of the Office of Public Health and the Environment, I get the most talented person with the best resume for that job. If they're a Republican, I don't care. Republican, Democrat, Independent, I'm, I'm hiring talent. I take them from business. I take them from nonprofits. I take them from foundations, academia, everywhere. We, I mean, we try to get the most diverse group of people to make the best decisions they can. And I think that's part of demonstrating that you can bring people together. 
Uh, and then the last thing, I almost always, and not, not always, some, some people are so unreasonable that you can't, you won't get there. I, I think, you know, Mitch McConnell might be one of those people. But almost everyone else, if I've got a problem, I go to them on their turf and I try to hear them. And, and when they, usually they're angry about something and they get worked up and they start almost shouting at me. And I repeat back to them their exact words they use. And there's something about when someone's angry, but they hear their words, their own words coming back to them, that, 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 that they feel validated in some way and, and they feel heard. And in the same way, if someone's yelling at you, you just shut down. At least I do. I don't, I, I'm not thinking about what they're saying. I'm kind of shutting down. When you repeat back to someone else the words they say in anger, by repeating the words, you hear them in a different way. And it is a, it almost always plants the beginnings of, of trust, of, 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 of at least hearing each other. And once you have a little bit of trust, then you can begin to collaborate. And once you begin to collaborate, that's how you get stuff done. And you start with the smaller things because it's easier to get past some of those little things, uh, but you work towards the big ones. So in talking about collaboration, um, you had some success with gun safety measures in Colorado, but going back to the politics of fear versus hope and versus progression, how do you take on, how do you have the conversation even where you talk about gun safety, expanded background checks and such without feeding the whole narrative of they're coming for your guns? And I ask this, you know, I, I'm not a, a right-wing individual or, or a left, I'm pretty centrist on most things. Um, but uh, I, I, I'd, I'd like to know because I personally am a gun owner and I believe in, um, in the general right to own firearms, but I also believe in really adequate background checks. I don't personally believe that anybody with a criminal record should be purchasing uh, weapons. And you guys had a lot of success in Colorado with, with improving background checks. But how do you have that conversation to do something that's a reasonable change without feeding that narrative of they're coming for your guns? Well, you have to be explicit and say, we don't want to take your guns away. We want to make sure guns don't end up in the hands of dangerous people. And people like yourself uh, that hunt, that, that own guns, but recognize that we should all want a safer community and that community, uh, communities are vulnerable if you start allowing people to have, you know, anger problems, uh, records of violence, uh, mental health issues. Uh, you want to make sure that guns don't end up in the hands of, da of dangerous people. And almost every state keeps the records of, I mean, everyone does some level of background checks. They don't do universal, and that's the battle. Every Republican I talked to in Colorado, every Republican businessman ag agreed with you. Background checks make sense. Let's, let's get to every gun purchase. Let's make, we were getting to 50% of the gun purchases. Let's get to 100%. And so this whole kind of battle rose up because even though every Republican business person agreed that we should do background checks, the NRA is so effective in their lobbying that they convinced every single state Republican senator, every single state Republican representative, that they wouldn't have anything to do with universal background checks. So we finally, and this is my son, that the, the joke I always tell is that my son, I made the mistake of complaining to him. And he goes, oh, dad, what do you do at work all day? It's so hard. Make decisions. He goes, dad, get the facts. Make a decision. Check. Next. And anyway, we finally took his advice, went, went out and uh, got the, the data for 2012, this was in the spring of 2013, we got the data for how many 
people did we catch getting to only 50% of the background checks? And the numbers, I mean, in a, in a state like Colorado with, with five and a half million people, there were 38 people convicted of homicide who tried to buy a gun and we stopped them. 133 people convicted of sexual assault, right? There were 1,300 people convicted of felony assault where someone generally goes to the hospital. They tried to buy a gun and we stopped them. Uh, 240 people had a judicial restraining order not to see their ex-boss or their ex-spouse. They tried to buy a gun and we stopped them. And, and there were 140 people when they came to pick up their gun. We arrested them for an outstanding warrant for a violent crime. I mean, the, the Republican legislators, or basically the NRA, through them, have been saying, oh, crooks aren't stupid. They won't get a background check. Oh, yeah? Right? 140 of them were pretty darn stupid. They came and got a background check, and we arrested them because they still had a warrant for their arrest. I think that the key is to, from the, at the beginning of the discussion and the beginning and the middle of the discussion and at the end of the discussion, you tell everybody, we're not trying to take anyone's gun away. Our goal here is to make sure that we, that we keep guns out of the hands of dangerous people. And I think we should you know, look at certain things like, shouldn't there be some training? If you're going to have an assault weapon, shouldn't you go through some process of learning about it? And shouldn't that be kind of an, a, a requirement before someone can go out and buy one and own one, or, or at least before they can go out and use it? Uh, and I know that's much more controversial. That gets people upset. But we, we make people take driving, uh, driving tests before we let them behind an automobile. That's a, a useful toy that, if improperly managed, can be lethal. And I'm not sure that's a, such a bad an analogy with, with guns. Yeah, you know, it's, um, it, it, it is one of the things that really gets people fired up. And then I look at my own history, and I spent five years in the Army. And peacetime, it was, it was, a, it was a great experience. I was uh, in Korea for a while and in the U.S. and went to Saudi, but, uh, but never in the Afghanistan or uh, Iraq theaters at all. It was a long time ago. And, uh, but I had good training. In my son now, I, I, my wife and I have five kids together, so pretty big family. But uh, our youngest son um, is a great kid, but he lives in Arizona, and he went out and he called, and you know, I'm going to go buy my first, my first firearm. And it and it gives you pause because um, once again, he's a great kid, he's a smart kid, he uh, he has a lot of things going for him, but he hasn't had any training, and he didn't live with us as a as an adult at all, or even in his later years as a teen. So he never got any of that. He never went to hunter safety course. And it makes right. me think, you know, it, it, from the fundamental point of view, you want to say, okay, it's our rights and, and we should be able to do whatever we want. But there is a greater concern. You have to think about that and say, okay, so now my son's going to go buy a pistol. Does he have the training to protect himself from the pistol, his family? Is he going to lock it up? Is he going to know how to use it? Keep his ammunition separate from his, uh, from, from his weapon. Make sure that if his, one of his kids, when they're a teenager, if they're exhibiting depression. depression. Right. I mean, guns, the vast majority of, of gun deaths are from, from suicides. Right. Uh, you know, I took my, I did my, my son went through a, a hunter safety class, I, and I took it with him. I went, took every class with him just because it's a cool thing sure. to be able to do with your yeah. child uh, when he was 14. And it was interesting to, to watch him learn and see that this wasn't as easy and you know, you watch all these movies and you think, oh, these guns, you can just do whatever you want. Don't have to worry about it. Right. People die. I mean, every day, you know, people die from accidentally from, from gunshots. Sure. And people who theoretically know what they're doing do as well. They're, it's, a, it's a scary thing. Um, of course, you're forever going to be known as the governor who signed uh, legalization law in Colorado. And I've, and I've heard you talk uh, a few times now. Um, 
one of the things I really respect about that is that you weren't pro-legalization at the time, but you were pro-voice of the people. And over time, I think you've talked about your position has evolved. So one of the things that, that is really important to um, a lot of the people that I know and talk to is prison reform in the idea that we have so many people whose lives and their families' lives are interrupted because they've been sent to prison, to jail, county, whatever it is, at some level of incarceration for a period of time, whether it's weeks or months or years for nonviolent drug offenses. And now Colorado, I, I, I'm not an expert by any means, but is no longer imprisoning people for low-level use of marijuana, at least, nonviolent use of marijuana. Right. So instead of spending all this money to incarcerate folks, that money is, I would assume, being used for other things and, and is no longer just going to the prison system. Those families are able to stay together. Uh, you know, mom or dad are not going off to jail for a period of time. Here it's very different on this end of the country. If you were to be president, why not legalize or at least decriminalize on a federal level and let states make those decisions? Is that something that you would see in your future, or does that need more study, or how would that work? So what we did in Colorado, and, and you're right, I opposed the legalization of recreational marijuana, primarily because it's no fun if you're the governor to be in conflict with federal law. Right. I took an oath to obey the Constitution of Colorado. I also took an oath to obey the Constitution of the United States. When they're in conflict, it's just that you're in a no-win situation. Uh, they're also, we were worried about uh, a spike in teenage consumption. We were worried about a, a, a significant increase in people driving while high. No one had ever done it. Uh, but voters passed it, 55-45, and, and th we decided this was something that we had to do. And so uh, we took it on, and we did the best. We made mistakes, but we did the best we possibly could to, to mitigate those problems. Uh, I think this year we'll have gotten rid of the black market, at least in terms of consumption in the state of Colorado completely. Some people might be growing it illegally and still exporting it, thinking they can get out you know, in, in the shadows in Colorado somehow better than elsewhere. But, but, but it, in the state of Colorado, we think we'll just about shut down the, the black market. And, you know, and we haven't seen a spike in consumption of teenagers. We haven't seen driving while high go up at all. Uh, the old system, as you point out, was so unfair. We sent millions and millions of low-income kids, largely kids of color, to, to prison. And not only that, we made them felons. So when they came out, harder to get a job, harder to get training, harder to get, harder to, to make your life successful. And you know, I don't think at this point uh, two-thirds of, of the states in America have legalized uh, medical marijuana. Uh, about a third of them have legalized re recreational marijuana. I don't think the federal government should tell Maine or Alabama that they have to legalize it. But I do think they should decriminalize it at the federal government. I do think that they should de decertify it from being a Schedule One narcotic. When something's a Schedule One narcotic... A, a, a PhD medical researcher can't use it to study. We need to, we know anecdotally, we are, at least I am absolutely certain, that cannabinoid and THC have, in various forms, have application to see people that have seizures, uh, to autism in various forms. Let's do the research. So delist it, let's start the research. Let's make sure that, that the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, supervises that research like they do with every other single drug. Let's make sure that the Department of Agriculture makes sure we're not using pesticides that will ultimately end up harming us. Uh, and let's make sure that banks can legally bank in states that have legalized it. Because right now, if a bank allows you to use a charge card or write a check 
using their bank system for any purchase of marijuana, they could lose their charter. And that that's too big a risk. So I think the federal government should allow those states that want to legalize it to have the best chance at a successful operation as possible. Uh, and, you know, if, a, if other states don't want to legalize it, they can make up their mind if and when they decide to do that. That's a great answer. I really appreciate that. I, I know you're on a tight schedule, and I don't want to be the guy that held you up, so I just have one last question <coughs> okay. for you. Um, you're a beer guy. You uh, built an empire with, with help with other folks as well. A small empire. A small empire and, uh, on, uh, in, in brew pubs. And uh, I know you enjoy beer. I've, I've heard of that. And uh, I just wanted to know if at any point you have had regrets that Brett Kavanaugh stole the phrase, I like beer, because that could have been a great campaign. <laughs> yeah, that was, uh, that was a misfortune, right? Uh, and certainly beer is, is one of those beverages that, that universally goes more with different styles of food. I mean, look at Gusano's. Right, you're going to have a Mexican a Mexican meal. What better beverage? And again, I understand that you can have a light wine or white wine with with a lot of Mexican food and some you know some of the richer food. You might want a, a glass of red wine, but nothing beats uh, a Mexican beer. And whether it's dark or light, uh, according to your taste in the food, it's just the perfect. And, and the same's true with shepherd's pie or you know with uh, fried wontons. You go down, beer goes with almost everything, and. I think in the we'll see in this presidential election, you know, for years people say that you know various candidates, George W. Bush, uh, Bill Clinton, they won because they were the person that the public decided they wanted to have a beer with. Well, wouldn't some? Don't you think the public's going to be have an inclination towards having a beer with the person who makes the beer, who's had beer with more people than probably all the other candidates combined? Uh, we'll see. But that's certainly I look at. Uh, at, at, at my experience in beer, and certainly in restaurants, as a great advantage because I think I've, you know, I've been in the middle of all kinds of, of uh, I mean, literally everybody in human society. As you know, when you run a restaurant, I always, we, we always called the back of the house was the heart of the house. And I, I always spent more time, or at least as much time back in the kitchen and around that, the, the, the chefs and the line cooks and you learn as much there as you do from your 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 customers in the front of the house, and you know restaurants are one of the rare places where you get a total cross section of humanity every day. It's it's a gift. So beer, absolutely. I'm I'm the first brewer since Sam Adams in 1792 to get elected a governor, uh, and you know I'm not sure I've found, I've been looking. I haven't found a single American president that had ever been a brewer professionally. Uh, I aim to be the first. Well, on that note, uh, Governor John Hickenlooper, thank you very much for coming by today. We really appreciate it, and we wish you all the best of luck with uh, your continued campaign well, to become president. thanks for having me on, and congratulations on getting this, the podcast and the studio spectacular. And listeners out there, play your cards right. You could be a guest. <laughs> thank you very much. So long. Take care. And there you go, my conversation with Governor John Hickenlooper. I invite you to take a deeper look into his campaign, his policies, and his track record. Hopefully this is the first in a series of discussions with candidates for office and those who hold office locally and nationally. The invitation is open. Thank you for listening today, and I hope you'll join me again soon on Radio Free New Hampshire.